as we move into the scriptures this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 27 to 30. It's where we're going to be. If you don't have a copy of it in front of you, you can find it on the screen behind me as we read it together. Mark chapter 8, picking up in verses 27, verse 27, and reading down through verse 30 together this morning. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Mark records these words, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, I don't know if you've realized this yet or not in life, but there are many things in life that are just not the same if you leave out key ingredients. Right? I, I'm a fan of all different flavors of ice cream, okay? I'm an equal opportunity ice cream enjoyer, okay? So um, my daughter and I love some mint chip ice cream. We're the only two in our household that will eat it, though, so we buy the small uh, cartons of it instead of the big ones. We enjoy Bluebell Cookie Two-Step. I mean, that's some good stuff right there. Some of you think it may be a little too sweet, um, but it, it hits the spot for me. Um, we enjoy, uh, my wife particularly enjoys peanut butter, any kind of peanut butter flavored ice cream. And so uh, on her birthday, on Mother's Day, on special occasions, uh, we buy a little peanut butter flavored ice cream. But listen, ice cream is, no matter what flavor it is, it's just not the same without the cream. You know what I'm saying? Like if you just have ice and sugar, if somebody had never tasted ice cream before and you put a bowl of ice and sugar in front of them and said, eat some ice cream, and they took a bite of an ice cube sprinkled with sugar, right, maybe a little cookie dough on top of that, right, do you think that's going to leave a lasting impression in their mind and on their palate and leave them craving for more. I seriously doubt it because ice cream is not the same without the cream, right? I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but it's not. Sausage is not the same without the meat inside, okay? If you just had casing, you're going to serve a piece of sausage, you're going to cut into that thing, ready to eat just something savory, and all you find is hollow air inside. It is not the same. Pound cake. I'm using a lot of food illustrations this morning. But pound cake is not the same without a pound of sugar, a pound of eggs, a pound of butter, a pound of flour. If you try to substitute something for the butter, it is not the same. Right? You can put applesauce, you can put all kinds of other things in there you might use to moisten that thing up with, but it does not taste the same. There are lots of things in life that if you leave out key ingredients or try to substitute key ingredients, that they do not, you don't experience them the same. It's true in all realms of different types of foods. But listen, that principle, I want you to know, is true as well in the Christian faith. Because Christianity is not a set of, about a set of principles in your life. The key ingredient in Christianity is not a list of doctrines. It's not a list of practices. It's not a set of principles. But the key ingredient in Christianity is a person named Jesus Christ. That's the key ingredient in Christianity. 
And listen, the reason I'm passionate about this this morning is because it's a pressing issue in the world in which we live today. And it's in large part, listen, due to a failure of the church to present a robust picture of this Jesus that we find on the pages of Scripture to the watching world. Because in many places, Christianity has been condensed down. Right? We've settled for a Christianity without Christ. We've substituted principles for the person. In other words, we believe that Christianity is essentially something that we utilize in our lives and the lives of others to teach them good morals on how they ought to conduct themselves, how they ought to behave, how they ought to vote, how they ought to do all kinds of things in life. But we've, what we've done is we've boiled down essentially the essence of Christianity and said it's about principles, not about this person named Jesus. And in the text that we read this morning, we come face to face with the identity of Jesus Christ. In fact, all of Mark's gospel up to this point has been building to this moment. The flow of thought from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 29 has been leading us to this confession that Peter makes. All the evidence we find of the the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, the things that He says, the things that He does, what He declares and the deeds see Him carry out, they've all been building to this crescendo of this confession that Peter makes. See, in many ways, these four verses are the climax of Mark's gospel as the identity of Jesus is put front and center for the readers of Mark's account for the first time. All the evidence has been building, and now it's been put forward as a verdict on the identity of who Jesus is. When Peter makes a confession in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want us to see three things in it, okay? Three things in it. First thing I want us to see is this, is that what this text calls us to do is to esteem Jesus rightly. To esteem Jesus rightly. Now, what does it mean to esteem someone, right? When we esteem someone, it means that we hold them in high regard, We might honor them, we might applaud them, we admire them, or even give them awards. Listen, every industry that you work in has its awards, right? In the field of education, you have teachers of the year, okay, or administrators of the year. In the field of sales, you have top salesmen in design, the top designers, those awards that go out. In athletics, you have most valuable players, all right, the people who contribute the most value to the teams that they're on. Every industry has its awards, and through the giving of those awards and through the admiration that they hold and through the applause they receive, they're being esteemed or held in high regard or honored. Right? Students, those of you who don't, you're not working, you are under child labor laws against that, some of you for under a certain age. But listen, in your schools, many of your schools have awards. When I was growing up, right, when I got yearbooks every year, we always wanted to see who had been voted most likely, right? Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? But listen, most likely to succeed, most likely to become president, most likely to right, become a professional athlete or a rock star, whatever it was, they were most likely, right, to become these things, right? And so, 
when you think about those most likely awards, right? You held those people in high esteem. You honored them. You respected them. You applauded them or admired them. That's what it means to esteem someone, to hold them in high regard, honor, applaud, admire, and award them. Now, I want you to notice in the text, when Jesus, on the way to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, turns to them and asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And what do the disciples say? Well, some say that you're John Baptist back from the dead. John's already been beheaded in Mark's gospel. And Herod thinks that maybe Jesus is John back from the grave. Come to haunt him. Okay, so some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Perhaps one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Right? Who goes to Mount Carmel and confronts the 450 prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven, consumes a sacrifice on the altar, mocks the gods of the other nations by teasing them, saying, well, maybe your gods are on the toilet. Right? Right? This is Elijah. Okay? So maybe he's Elijah back from the dead, a great prophet. Or maybe just one in a line of prophets who have come to teach us. Now listen, I want you to know that each of these individuals, John and Elijah and the prophets, would have been held in high regard in Israel's history, throughout their history. So the people around Jesus, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? The disciples essentially say this, they see you, Jesus, as most likely to preach a great sermon. Right? Or as the top advocate in his field for righteousness. That's how people see you, right? They want to esteem him highly, but they do not esteem him rightly. And there's a difference between those two things. They may see Jesus as a great preacher, a great communicator. They may see Jesus as a powerful and perceptive prophet. They may see Jesus as a man of righteousness who advocates for uh, the the poor and the oppressed. This is how they see him. And yet, while all those things are true, they are not enough. They stop short. And so what this thing that, one of the things this text teaches us is there's a difference between esteeming Jesus very highly and esteeming Jesus rightly. See, there are many even within our day who would esteem Jesus highly. Right? Whether you th- believe it or not, those who would hold to the faith of the Islam, Muslims, they would esteem Jesus highly. He's a great prophet, powerful, not the highest prophet, but a great prophet. So they would esteem him highly. Jews would esteem him highly, even as a prophet. Secular humanists, those who believe that that, that, that essentially there is nothing sacred and we are left to our own to define for ourselves meaning and purpose in life, they would even see in Jesus' teachings things that they would highlight and they would hold in high regard. Listen, politicians on both sides of the aisle esteem Jesus highly whenever it would benefit their election campaigns. There's many people who would esteem Jesus highly. Adherents to the American civil religion esteem Jesus highly because he teaches us how to be good, moral, upstanding citizens of our societies and make a contribution to the common good. And so Jesus is esteemed highly in all these places, but I want you to know that he is not esteemed rightly in all those places. Muslims do not esteem him rightly. Jews do not esteem him rightly. Secular humanists do not esteem him rightly. Politicians and American civil religion do not esteem him rightly because there is a difference between applause and allegiance. 
big difference. And this is what I be, one of the things I believe Mark wants to show us. That you can have a high opinion of Jesus and yet not be a Christian. Never having been born again. You can have a high opinion and a lofty view of Jesus and yet not see Him for who He reveals Himself to be and who the Scriptures reveal Him to be. Because to esteem Him highly doesn't necessarily mean that you have esteemed Him rightly. So if we're going to esteem Him rightly, what must we see and say about Him? I appreciate Stanley jumping in for me last week very, very, very last minute. Okay, 4.30 on Saturday, he got the phone call. All right, but the text that he looked at last week and seeing Mark asking the question, or Jesus asking the question, do you see anything? To this man whose eyes that he's trying to restore sight to. And he does it in phases. Sequentially. Right? He does it. He, he, he touches him once and he touches him again. This teaches us there's multiple touches that we need from Jesus throughout our lives to be fully restored. And to be able to see clearly. But a whole, the whole, one of the whole purposes of that miracle being set would place that Mark sets it in his gospel account is to teach us that not everyone sees Jesus clearly. Not everyone sees Jesus rightly. Sometimes our visions of Jesus are clouded by our own agendas. Right? And so if we're going to see Him rightly and say true things about Him, then what must we say? Two things, and then we're done. First of all, you've got to affirm that He is the true prophet, priest, and king that we and the people of Israel had waited for for generations and throughout centuries. See, while everyone else around Jesus sees him as another of God's messengers, Peter says, and I, I don't think Peter fully understands what he's saying just yet, but he declares him not to be another messenger, but the Messiah. The Messiah. In verse 29, Peter responds to Jesus' question about his identity with this confession. You are the Christ. Now, the word Christ literally mean, means in the Greek language anointed one. And it's equivalent with the Old Testament term Messiah, the Hebrew term Messiah. And within the Old Testament scriptures, there were three categories of people who were anointed by God for service to his people. You had prophets, prophets the Lord raised up. And sent to his people to preach and proclaim and teach and call out sin and call his people to repentance. You had priests whom God raised up in order to mediate the relationship between God and man and represent men before God. And then you had kings whom God sent to rule and govern his people. And see, the people, while the people are saying, listen, this is just another messenger Peter affirms, you are the anointed one. You are the true prophet, you are the true priest, and you are the true king that Israel has been waiting for from generation after generation after generation after generation. That's what's wrapped up in Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. So what does that mean? Listen, as the true prophet, it means that whenever Jesus shows up onto the scene, that he speaks with conviction. 
See, among the people of Israel, there's a legacy of prophetic ministry throughout Israel's history. And in the Old Testament, there was a long line of prophets who had spoken the word of the Lord to God's people, beginning with Moses and then closing with Malachi in the Old Testament. But throughout their history, they were continually looking for a prophet that Moses promised would come in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, we read these words. Deuteronomy, the second law, is Moses' deathbed sermon, right? God says to the people whenever they refuse to believe him and go into the land of promise and take it, right, as, as, as the land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they believe the 12 spies instead of the two, and so they wind up wandering in the wilderness. And he says this generation, because of their unbelief, is not, not going to set foot in the promised land. Moses gets to see it from the hilltop, but before he dies in Deuteronomy, he preaches a sermon. And in that sermon, Deuteronomy 18, 15, he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And listen, every prophet that God raised up in the Old Testament, there was an anticipation. Is this the one that Moses talked about? Is this the one that Moses talked about? Is this the one that Moses talked about? Is this the one to whom we should listen? And in one sense, all of them were prophets to whom the people of God should listen. But I want you to know that Moses was speaking not only of this successive line of prophets who God would raise up, but he was speaking of a particular prophet. And one of the ways we know that is because of the way that the authors, the apostles in the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, draws back on this text and points us to Jesus. Listen, in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, after Peter and John heal a man at Simon's portico, listen, Peter stands up to deliver an address to all those who were gathered around. And in Acts chapter 3, Verse 22, and speaking of Jesus, he says, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You should listen to him and whatever he tells you. Peter said, what was said way back there in Deuteronomy 18, Peter said, I want you to know that the person that Moses was talking about is this one whom you have crucified and whom God has raised. He was the prophet like Moses that God would send to his people, the true prophet, as he would reveal the truth of God to us. See, Mark has already, and Mark has already shown us throughout his gospel account that Jesus is a masterful teacher. He does so by showing us the parables with which Jesus taught as he unfolds them, that he's a powerful and perceptive prophet who confronts hypocrisy and injustice, calling the people to repentance. He teaches with authority and conviction, not as their religious leaders had taught them. So Jesus, as the true prophet, he speaks with conviction. Now, listen to look at look again what Moses and Peter say about this one who would be like Moses. He says, it is to him you shall listen. To him you shall listen. Now, what that doesn't mean, listen, what that doesn't mean is this, is that it's to him, right, it's to his voice that should pass upon those little membranes inside of these pieces of cartilage appended to the sides of your head, and you should let those, his words vibrate upon your eardrums, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's to him, you, sh- you should hear what he says, but you should listen, you should take heed, you should receive what he has to say. 
You should take every word that he speaks with a sense of seriousness and soberness. That's what he's that's what they're saying. It is to this prophet you should listen and bring your life around and order it in accordance with his teaching. Listen, we talked about food to start off with. I don't know about you, but I love a good buffet. Okay, right? Because I can go to a buffet, especially if after I've run, you know, 10 or 12 miles, I can go get cleaned up, go to a buffet, get my plate, walk down, right? The little steel, steel rails with my little plastic tray, and I can pick a little bit of this, and I can pick a little bit of that, and a little bit of the other, and I can take what is appealing to me, what would satisfy my appetite in that moment, and I can put it on my tray, and I can pass through, but I can leave behind those things that don't appeal to my appetite in that moment, right? So I can take a little bit of this meat and a little bit of these vegetables and a whole lot of this dessert and I can pass by and I can go to the register and I can pay and I can go sit on the table and I can enjoy my own self-curated meal. But listen, whenever we read Deuteronomy 18.15 and Acts 3.22, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you, listen, what that means is this, the truth that Jesus proclaims and that he is, because he is truth. The truth that he proclaims and embodies is not like a buffet. We don't get to come to Jesus and say, well, I'll take a little bit of this, but I'll leave that on the, on, on, on the buffet for the next person who comes behind me because they're probably more passionate about that area than I am. So I'll leave that behind and I'll take those areas that appeal to my appetite and I'll go sit down and I'll enjoy my self-curated buffet of truth. That's not how it works, right? Because there's many people who would come to Jesus and say, well, listen, I'll take all the love stuff, right? Love everybody, right? All we need is love. I'll take all the love stuff, but listen, all the stuff about sacrifice, wow, that, that, listen, that would infringe upon my comfort. So I'll, I'll leave that on the buffet. Listen, that's not how it works. When whenever we say Jesus is the true prophet, that means everything that he says must be taken with the same degree of seriousness and soberness in our lives. I wonder to what degree, even within the church, we have tried to be selective with regards to what we would embrace and embody and what we would hold at arm's length when it comes to the teachings of Jesus. So as a true prophet, he speaks with conviction. As a true priest, he mediates with compassion. He mediates with compassion. See, the priesthood in the Old Testament... It was put in place by God to mediate his relationship with his people. Okay? Now, a mediator essentially is this. It's a representative. Somebody who stands between two parties. So in a real sense, a lawyer in a legal context is a mediator between the judge or jury and the defendant. Okay? So they're a mediator. Or, a me- or, or, or the judge and jury and the plaintiff. Right? The lawyer is essentially the one who stands in between and mediates those relationships. They represent one person or a group of people in front of another person or group of people. That's what a mediator is. 
And in the Old Testament, priests, they represented us before God and God before the people. This is why all those sacrificial laws were set up in place in the Old Testament because the priest, particularly the high priest, he would go in before God into the Holy of Holies, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the mercy seat one time a year. And as he stood there, he stood as a representative of all the people of Israel who were out there. Or Moses as a mediator between God and the people, right? He goes up on the mountain on Sinai. What does he do? He meets with God and he receives the, the, the law. He receives God's commands. And then he comes down the mountain to present what God has said to the people. He's mediating that relationship. Okay, so he's standing between the two. And the priests in the Old Testament, that was the role that they performed. They represented God, the people before God, as they presented offerings and sacrifices on the altar. But listen, the, the Bible... If you take into the whole, account the whole counsel of Scripture, okay, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is not only our true prophet, but he's also our true high priest. See, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Who's the great high priest? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way and in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is our high priest who is without sin. He's perfect, pure, and spotless, and yet he knows the human experience so well because he took on flesh to become a man, not partially a man, but fully a man, right? So he experienced what it was to be tempted in the wilderness to set aside God's agenda for his. As Satan came and said, listen, you can circumvent all of this cross and sacrifice and blood and gore if you would just but bow down and worship me. I can give you everything that you seek. And so Jesus, at every instance, pushed back against the temptation which is why he's able to sympathize with you in your temptation as your great high priest. He understands your condition. He understands the nature of the human heart. He understands what it's like to be tempted to set aside God's agenda for our own. But not only, listen, the priests in the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices. And so Jesus had to offer a sacrifice, but he didn't offer the sacrifice of any blood, blood of any bull or any goat, but he offered his own blood as the sacrifice. The author of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14 to say, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for a single time, a single sacrifice for all time, for all sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, the author of Hebrews says, listen, Jesus is not only the priest who's offering the sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice that has been offered. And he's able to sit down now at the right hand of God because his atoning work, his redeeming work is done. 
He doesn't have to go day by day with doves into the temple or with grain into the temple or day by day with other animals in the temple. He doesn't have to go year by year with the blood of a lamb spotless and pure and and cast it upon the altar. He doesn't have to go year by year and send one out into the wilderness to take away the sins of the people because he is the lamb that has been slain. He is the priest who offered the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice that was offered upon the altar. He's both and. And so as our true priest, listen, what that means is this. Like we ought to, as I said earlier, we ought to take everything that he says seriously as our true prophet, but as our true priest, we cannot come to God without him. We cannot go around him, right? We can't circumvent him. The only way to get to God is through him. There is no other way. Because there is no other sacrifice sufficient to bring us into the presence of God without us being destroyed on account of our sin. Right? And there is no other mediator now who is sufficient to represent us before God other than the priest who is seated at his right hand, namely Jesus. Right? I want you to know, I cannot mediate your relationship with God. That is not my role. There is no human, right? The heads of denominations, the heads of, of, of any sort of religious entity or organization cannot mediate your relationship with God. You belonging to any particular denomination does not mediate your relationship with God through those structures or systems. No one comes to God other than personally coming through Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. So you cannot go around him. You must come through him. But secondly, church, listen, if you've come through him, then you ought to rejoice at your reconciled position as sons and daughters of God. There ought to be gratitude that would fill our hearts. There ought to be joy that would fill our lungs as we sing. Listen, I sat up here this morning, and for the, the, the last song we sang before I came up to preach, I just, I don't know if you know this, but if you've ever sat on the front row, you don't hear much of what's going on up here, okay, because of the way the speakers are set in this room. But I can hear a lot of what's going on back there. And so what I heard was a beautiful chorus of voices rejoicing in the person of Jesus. And I want you to know, it is caused me to erupt in my own heart in a, an overflow of gratitude to God to hear your voices singing His praise. Because here, His reconciled sons and daughters are rejoicing in the access they now have because of our great high priest. So He's our true prophet. He's our true priest. And then third, he's a true king. As a true king, he rules with righteousness. You see, throughout the Bible, Jesus is presented as God's anointed king. In Acts chapter 13, in verses 26 to 33, once again, Peter speaking, he says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, 
to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, speaking of Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In other words, they didn't see what was being said as they looked forward to the one who was to come, even though they talked about him every single Sabbath. They were fulfilled by them condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this Jesus, who was crucified, the, the foreordained plan of, plan of God was carried out by the hands of these sinful men. We saw that in Acts chapter 2 already, that it was carried out verbatim in accordance with the prophecy, even though they didn't recognize what they were doing, even though they heard about it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, or Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, okay? On Sabbath, every single week they heard about it, but they didn't recognize it. And God raised him from the dead, and then the author, the, 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 the preacher here in Acts says, he quotes the second psalm saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The second psalm shows up all over the New Testament, and it's a psalm referring to the anointed king of God who would rule over all that he has made. Listen, in verse 6 of Psalm 2, it says this, As for me, God, the Lord, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And God says that in response to the nations who were raging and rebelling against God. And we're told in verse five, or verses 4 and 5, the Lord laughs, right? He laughs. It's like us looking down at ants. But whenever you step on their mound, they just kind of erupt in fury. And then you pour gasoline on them. Okay, right? That's God, God's looking at us and he's saying, this is, this is amusing. As if they think they could rise up and overthrow me. But he says, no, as for me, I've set my king, my anointed ruler in Zion, on my holy hill. And at the very end of, Psalm, of that Psalm 2, in verse 12, we're told, Kiss the son, lest he become angry with you. And then at the end of verse 12, we're told, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So the authors of the New Testament apply this psalm of God's anointed king to Jesus and say, this is who the, the psalmist was talking about. They were talking about Jesus. Jesus is the anointed king, and it is in him that you should take refuge. Right? Because the author of the psalm says, listen, there is no refuge from him. Right? There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. And listen, what it means to take refuge in Jesus as our king who rules with righteousness is not some emotional abstract experience that we have on a Sunday morning as we're singing a song. That's not an emotional abstract experience, but rather, listen, to take refuge in him I think is defined in the first words of verse 12, when he says, kiss the son. 
And you're like, what, is, what in the world does that mean? Listen, in traditional cultures or in ancient cultures, to kiss the hand or the feet of a person in power was often a very public display, display of your submission to him. Right? Which is why when you watch like mafia movies, they're always kissing the hand of the patriarch and the family, right? Submitting their allegiance to him, their submission to him. They're going to carry out his will. Right? So when he says kiss the son, that's what it's talking about. Publicly show. This wasn't a private thing that you did. It was in the king's court. You came in before him, and as you approached him, you would kiss his feet or you would kiss his hand, publicly showing your submission to him, publicly affirming your allegiance to him. Okay? And so that's what, that's what the, the author of, of Psalm, Psalm 2 is saying to us, that we ought to do is kiss the hand of God's anointed king, his very own son, Publicly demonstrating our allegiance to him. Now what that looks like, for many, some of us might be following Jesus in baptism. As a public demonstration of our allegiance to Jesus as our king. Of saying, I'm dying to myself. I'm submitting every desire and every deed to him. As I lower beneath the waters. And I'm being raised now to live in obedience and submission to all that God has willed. That's what baptism is, church. And for those of us who have yet to take that step to publicly submit our lives to Jesus by being buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, I want to appeal to you this morning. Kiss the Son. Publicly demonstrate your allegiance and loyalty to Him. It's not something that you just do bedroom or in your closet but rather before men testifying to the fact that you belong to him that he rules and reigns over you and then you make it your aim to bring all of your life for the rest of your life under his good and gracious rule because he is king so as our prophet he speaks with conviction as our priest he mediates with compassion as our king he rules with righteousness have you affirmed the fact that he is the true prophet, priest, and king? And secondly, secondly, we must affirm more than that if we want to esteem Jesus rightly. Okay? Secondly, we affirm that he is the true and only God. The true and only God. See, in verse 27, I'll give you a little background here. We're told that the setting for this question and confession is the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city had a long history in the ancient world. It was a major city in Jesus' day that was located in the far northern stretches of the land of Israel, near Mount Hermon. It was built by a guy named Herod Philip in honor of Caesar Augustus, as, Caesar, as, as, as the emperor had given Herod jurisdiction over that area. So what he did was he built a city in honor of the emperor who put him into power. And in ancient times, it had been called Peneus in honor of the mythical god Pan. You ever seen pictures of that dude, right? Running around like, like I think he had like half horse, half man, playing a little flute kind of thing, okay? Right, mythical god Pan, right? So there was a shrine dedicated to Pan there in that city, Early in Israel's history, it had been a hot spot of Baal worship as well. The god of the Canaanites was worshipped. There was an altar and shrine to, 
the gods of the Canaanites there as well. At the time of Jesus, because Herod, Philip, had built it in response to Caesar Augustus giving him power and authority over that region. So there was now a shrine to the emperor cult as well there in Caesarea Philippi. So you had this city with a long history of false gods and idols being worshipped in her midst. The emperor cult that worshipped the Roman emperor as a divine being. Okay, The gods of the Canaanites who were worshipped and sacrificed to there in some very interesting ways. Go do some reading in history. I'll leave it at that. Right, And then you had the god of the mythical creatures that were worshipped there as well. So in this place, a city dedicated to false gods and idols, Jesus' true identity is revealed. Against that backdrop, in that location, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the true prophet. You are the true priest. You are the true king. And in conjunction with what Peter confesses, Paired with what Mark has already said about Jesus back in Mark chapter 1 when he introduces us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in verse 1. And then upon Jesus' baptism in chapter 1 verse 11 where a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then the voice that comes from heaven out of the cloud once again in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, that says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The prophet who would be like Moses, listen to Him. He's my Son. I've begotten Him. I have sent Him. So Jesus is no mere human prophet. He's no mere human priest. He's no mere human king. He is the true and only God. That is wrapped up in Peter's confession of Jesus. And listen, it is important to clarify that in a day like ours. It's important to clarify that in a day like ours because you cannot esteem Jesus rightly based upon the whole revelation of Scripture, including Mark's Gospel, unless you not only say he's a good teacher, a very compassionate individual, and somebody who exercises righteousness, but he's also the God who made us. And as such, we are accountable to him. Only then have we esteemed Jesus rightly. So as the true and only God, listen, church, he gets to set the terms of what it means to esteem him rightly, of what it means to follow him, of what it means to be his disciple. And listen, next week as we continue to press on in Mark's gospel, we're going to see the terms that he lays out. Because listen, they are not the terms I would give if I was making this stuff up. But Jesus sets the terms for us. And so next week we'll be challenged to see what it looks like to bend our wills, to submit them to His terms, to be His disciples. But I wonder, as we close this morning, if I were to ask this question of you, who do you say that He is? What would be your response? What would be your response? And listen, I want to say this too, as a, as a, as a closing word to our dads in the room. Listen, it is our responsibility, men, to ask that question 
of our children. That's a part of what it means not to provoke them to anger, but to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To ask them the question, who do you say he is? And maybe, just maybe this week, you would ask that question of those little hearts that you have been given responsibility for as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the person of Jesus. We celebrate his uniqueness. That There is no one like him. There is no one beside him. There is no one who compares to him. And Father, while there may be many in our culture who would esteem him very highly and affirm the things that he says, affirm the ways that he acted, affirming his true identity because they stopped short of affirming his divinity. Father, I pray that we as a church would have a robust picture of Jesus, a robust presentation of Jesus to the world. That we would take everything that he says seriously. That we would not pick and choose like a buffet of truth. But that we would make it our aim to bring all of our life for the rest of our life under his righteous rule. As we take all of his words seriously and as we rejoice in this relationship that he's made for us. To now be reconciled to you as he continues to stand between us as our mediator. Father, help us to see that there is no amount of good works that would allow us to go around Him, but we are fully dependent upon His grace and can only come through Him. So Father, may those truths settle on our hearts this week. And when the world asks us, who do you say that He is, may we say, he is the true and only God who speaks the words of God truly, who stands as our representative before a holy and just God. And He is our King who rules with all righteousness and wisdom. May that be our response. And may that be the response of more and more of our children as they come to see the beauty and glory of Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.